Hi, Shannon Waller here, and welcome to a very special episode of the Team Success Podcast in our Multiplication by Subtraction series, because today I'm interviewing someone that I've met and have really connected with over the topic by the name of Jeff Van Stratton. And I will let Jeff introduce himself because he's got a background and a history that is very rich. I don't know if I can do it justice. But what I really want to explore today in our conversation is what difference subtracting makes and how you can multiply the results as an impact or an effect of subtracting someone really for positive cultural change, which is really what Jeff's going to talk about today. Also very specifically in family businesses. So this will apply to a lot of you listening because I've learned from Amy Brisky in my interview with her about businesses in her and Kathy Colby's book, Business is Business, that 70 to 90% of North American businesses are in fact family owned, which I had no idea it was that high a statistic. So Jeff, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us today. I'm very excited to have you on the call. This is an adventure in real life experience of this particular circumstance about building great teams. And I just appreciate you sharing with us today. Thanks, Shannon. So maybe the best way to do it is just to kind of explain what I do and what I've done over the past 20 years or so. I've worked with family businesses that have experienced some kind of serious trauma or adversity. And that could either be personally within the family or professionally within the business. And probably to no one's surprise, those are pretty tightly linked. Mm -hmm. So in all cases that I've been involved with, this has adversely impacted the culture and consequently it's affected many of the employees of the company in a profound and and usually a negative way. So as you can imagine, when this is going on, you typically have kind of severe financial distress in the business, which just adds to the pressure. So I guess you could say that I'm kind of a business professional who specializes in positive cultural change. You know, if you get the culture right, the business works, almost always, I've found. And this often involves making difficult personnel decisions because there's wrong fit circumstances. Good people, wrong fit. Mm. That is such an important distinction. I think that's why people are kind of scared of this idea because there are good people, but as you said, if it's a wrong fit, it doesn't work. It doesn't work for the business, nor does it actually work for them. We'll get into that in just a moment, but I'm kind of curious because I'm wondering what some of those negative events have been, and I'm sure you have a list of things that have happened. But just to set the context, what are some specific examples, please don't name names, but what are some of the situations that you've had to come up and help handle afterwards? I'm kind of curious about that. Well, for instance, the company that I'm at right now, I've been here about three and a half years, and I can remember this very distinctly, but I was here less than a week, and somebody came up and said to me, uh, well, how long are you going to be here? Because nobody ever lasts. Mm. And that started to tell me a little bit about what was in front of me. And as you start to understand that, it's like, oh, okay, Jeff, uh, this is the same thing, different company. Right. Because <laughs> when you when you get that adversity, the things that I've seen, at least initially, I thought they were all unique. They're not unique. And they show up in a lot of different family businesses and you start to see kind of the common themes. So you'll see, first thing I usually try to do is get to learn who our team members are and understand what they do, how long they've been here, what they see our challenges as. And you start to pick up certain things, some positive and some not positive. You see things like arrogance or selfishness or disengagement or entitlement. I mean, all the things in the book that you had written. In fact, when I read the book the first time, whatever that was, seven, eight months ago, I quickly read it again. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I've seen all these <laughs> and maybe some more. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad they resonated and please feel free to add to the list. <laughs> 
you just put it in such an organized fashion for me that it was much easier to actually understand and address. Oh, I appreciate that. So you see those signs and you know that if you believe in getting the culture right, which I do, and I think anybody in a business should, if you get the culture right, the business usually runs pretty well. And if you believe in getting the culture right, you've got to address these things. Mm-hmm. My initial thought is to to see if you can, quote, save the person mm-hmm. and get them to see things in a different light and in a more positive light. A lot of times you can't. Mm-hmm. Then you have to yeah. take actions either get them into a role that fits better, or in many cases, they have to exit the company. Mm -hmm. Before we get into some people stories, let's talk about what you think are the hallmarks of a really good culture. What are things that you, A, look for, I guess, signs of dysfunction, but then also, how do you know when things are working? What are the real signs for you that, you know, as you said, you're really a professional, (laughs) business professional in creating really great company cultures. What do you aspire to help companies achieve? Where do you want them to get to? Yeah, maybe first off, before I say that, I have learned it's not that easy. No. Michelle, laughing here. It's just not that easy. It takes longer than you think. A culture is bigger than the people. Mm-hmm. And it can take good people and do things to it. So some of the things I try to get our culture, our teamwork, people with a growth mindset, people that can look towards the future and aren't focused on the past. It's very easy to dwell on the past, but the past is only relevant if it helps you for the future, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. So transparency, better communication. Every company I've ever been at, probably every company anybody's ever been at, is people will say, we don't communicate as well as we should. Okay. And that's a real tricky thing to communicate transparently, but succinctly and in a meaningful fashion. So if you get some of those things right, you're well on your way to having the type of culture that can become a high-performing culture. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of struck by your list because I love every element of it. So teamwork, people need to have a growth mindset, have a future focused, and the past is only relevant in terms of how it serves your future, transparency, and communication. What an awesome list. Yeah, I'd probably throw one more in there, too. You can't be afraid to fail. Mm. And what I've found in these cultures that are challenged is People can be afraid of their own shadow, and you just don't operate at your best when you're afraid to fail. I mean, you should operate in a thoughtful fashion, but you just got to do it. I always think not doing anything is the worst of the three answers. The right answer is the best. The wrong answer you can normally adjust from, but no answer just leaves you in quicksand. That is Oh, so insightful. I really appreciate that. That's great. So I'm curious because, as you said, you've read multiplication by subtraction several times and can kind of check off your experience. But I know that you've had some pretty, you know, ones that were challenging or that were hard to do and you tried to rehabilitate people's thinking. But let's get into a couple of examples of maybe one that you were able to kind of help shift their thinking and maybe one that maybe one that you were not able to, that it was actually a subtraction and what the impact of that was. So if you could just kind of outline, what are some examples of some people that you've had to impact one way or the other? Yeah, I'm thinking of a couple different folks, one from here and one from the previous company I was at, where you could see they were kind of on the fence. They showed enough promise where if you gave them the tools, the confidence, you know, you just got behind them and supported them you could probably get them there. Mm-hmm. And that's worked with, I'm thinking of one of the folks in our operation in particular, and thinking of another person too, where you could just see the tools were there, but they haven't had a chance to shine. And if you can somehow bring that out in them, and the confidence thing is so important. Typically, when you're in a damaged culture, most people aren't operating with much confidence either. 
That's such a great point. But what kind of conversations would you have with them and what would you say to them specifically to help them boost their confidence? Well, I would say more than anything, you're just kind of coaching them along the way. You're telling them that you're making a sound decision. If they didn't make a sound decision, you kind of talk through why and you let them know that was okay that you didn't get it right the first time. What's more important is do you eventually get it right? Mm-hmm. And you just coach them and build them up. I'm a golf coach as well. It's no different than what you do in athletics, how you try to coach people to work through adversity. So that's really getting into the kind of the leadership role in creating that great culture is that you are in just talking about leadership versus management to someone yesterday. And the leadership is your job is to grow people. So just as you said, athletics is such a phenomenal analogy for this, that you're looking to help people recognize when they're not being successful, but not in such a way that diminishes them, but that actually helps them get clear on how they can be more successful in supporting them and encourage them to do that and to not give up. So I guess in damage culture, people are afraid to take those risks and they're not feeling confident enough to even take up or attempt to use the tools. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. And one of the things you can do in terms of encouraging people to take risks and not being afraid to fail is you you can leave an example there. I mean, I certainly wasn't like this 10 years ago, but I feel like I am now. I'm not afraid to make a mistake. And maybe more importantly, I'm not afraid to acknowledge it because I think that that shows that you're willing to be vulnerable and you're you're willing to try to grow and improve. Mm-hmm. And if you can kind of do that by example, other people will follow that. Right. One of the things that impressed me in our previous conversations, Jeff, is you've talked about some of the companies that you've come in to work with and the leaders in that company who had the role almost did their best to diminish the people that work for them. So can you describe a couple of the characters that you've run into and what they're doing that doesn't work? Well, they're probably doing the opposite of what I just described. You know, instead of building somebody's confidence, you're acting like you're holier than thou and you're not supporting, you're not backing up. If you do talk the right way, you're not necessarily backing it up with your actions. So probably more than anything, you're doing the opposite of what I described. I think a good coach or a good leader does. Mm -hmm. I'm staring at this sheet of paper. You've probably seen it, Shannon, the difference between a boss and a leader. Mm -hmm. Boss demands leader coaches. Boss relies on authority. Leader relies on goodwill. All those things that a leader does, they're harder to do. Mm -hmm. It's an art, not a science. Right. It's almost even more true or more dramatic, I think, in family businesses, right? Because you've got often parent-children relationships, you've got relatives, and you've got that family dynamic that adds into a normal business relationship. And that can really twist things, well, sometimes it's positive, but it can really take things out of, twist them out of shape as well. You've seen that. Sure, sure. It's sometimes hard to figure out who's in charge when there's several family members, and and especially if there's a non-family member like me who happens to have the CEO title, it can be confusing for your people, and and there's just a lot of stuff to manage there. You can also find that family members are sometimes damaged by the previous generation. The previous generation isn't giving them the opportunity to shine, Mm -hmm. and those are things that bring an additional challenge into the situation. Those situations, they spill over into the business one way or the other. I mean, it's interesting. I've found that every time I've gone into a situation, everybody wants to talk about why the business isn't doing well. But at the core of the issue are usually other things. What are some of those other things? I think listing those out will be really instructive for people. Oh, you know, in a family, not necessarily having clarity on what each other's roles are and then staying in your lane, especially when there's multiple generations involved, not allowing 
the next generation to really learn and grow, Mm -hmm. which then also affects the people that aren't part of the family because they kind of come up with preconceived notions of the family members, which aren't necessarily fair. So it's just additional dynamics on the family side. Right. So it's really important then that family members really appreciate the fact, again, it kind of goes back to, I think, Amy and Kathy's book, is to really let business be business and family be family. And when we overlap those, at least in an unhealthy way, it is a really negative influences on the business. Is that right? Right. And the interesting thing is, you know, so we're only talking about family members, but, you know, in a typical family business like ours, there's only, what, two or three family members. So there's 198 that aren't. But those people are affected greatly by what happens within the family. That is such a great point because two or three family members can impact hundreds of people. One of the things I've coached leaders for a long time, and especially entrepreneurs, business owners, is be aware of your might. (laughs) Like kind of like Mighty Mouse. People are not aware of just how how much influence they have and how much impact they have and how a comment here or a look there or a lack of a comment or a look has ripples through the entire organization and builds reputation. Sometimes it's positive, but most of the time it's not. And people are just very unaware of the impact of their actions and behavior. Thank you for making that point. Really important. So let's get into talking about, I love specific examples because I know that people really resonate with that. What's an example of someone or more than one, because you've had lots over 20 years of experience doing this, some examples of people where you had to make some of those really challenging decisions and what the impact was afterwards. Let's dive into one of those. Yeah, it's interesting. It almost feels bad to say it sometimes, but we've had several examples at the company I'm with right now where very specific example where we've let somebody go, either coach them out or let them go, and more often than not, let them go, where our organization immediately got better, immediately, like right when that happened. In fact, some people looked at you and said, what the heck took you so long? (laughs) So I've always found the people know, your employees know who's carrying the load and who's kind of holding you back. And your job as a leader, you're you're not exhibiting very good leadership skills if you don't take those actions. Mm-hmm. You have to take them in a thoughtful way. I mean, I kind of think as I have gone through my career and as I read the book, I was kind of thinking about what are my biggest learnings there. And it's just you got to trust your gut because it's usually right, but you need to back it up with facts. And most importantly, you need to move very quickly in an honest but kind and compassionate fashion. I was kind of looking through the company I'm with right now, and we've made about 40% of our corporate people we've changed out in the last three years. And that's a staggering number. But as I discussed it with Michelle, uh, my director of HR, we kind of came to the conclusion that every one of those things were the right move. In fact, we actually came to the conclusion of we've got a little ways to go yet. (laughs) And again, that takes you back to the biggest learning of, of move quickly. So we've had very, very specific examples where our purchasing area was just not working the way it should, not at all. As you dug a little bit deeper, you came to understand that it was all about the person in there. They were disengaged, they felt entitled, and you weren't going to overcome that. We tried. We tried hard. And the fact is we should have accepted that fact earlier and moved on. So how long was it when you first identified the issue with that person until they left the organization? I'd say probably... 60 to 90 days. Okay. You've got to give that person a fair shake. But again, trusting your gut, it becomes pretty obvious pretty fast. Yeah. And actually that happened twice in our purchasing area. 
in my three years here. Mm-hmm. Two times we got it wrong, which could be a whole other podcast of how to hire right. <laughs> yes. Because it's very difficult. Possibly the most difficult thing in business is hiring properly. That might have to be one of my future books for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and then we can talk about that too. But it is, it's, it's interesting. I mean, people have asked me, okay, well, this is an interesting topic for teamwork, multiplication by subtraction. But I'm like, uh-huh, it is an interesting topic, but it's so relevant because you actually can't have great teamwork if the wrong fit people are on the team. And my motivation, as I think is pretty clear for if anyone's listening to the other podcasts, because just like you, it pains me, it hurts me when I see an organization being damaged or other people being harmed by the fact that someone is not pulling their weight, not aligned with the goals, sometimes even subverting them, which is awful. Or you said this earlier, paying lip service, saying the right things, but not doing them. That's probably the hardest one, Shannon, is oh, when, it is. at least if it's out in the open, it's easier to deal with. But when it's the sneaking around stuff, that's the really tough ones to deal with. And I've normally seen it. This isn't the only example, but I often see it in leadership where people are really smart. They've been around for a long time, but they're more interested in their own agenda than the company's. And those are the situations in particular that actually prompted me to write the book because I'd identified it with a whole bunch of clients and friends that I'd work with. And most of my clients become my friends. I would point it out to them. And then two years later, they go, you know, Shannon, you were right. I'm like, that was two years ago. Come on. <laughs> And that's what compelled me to kind of lay out the symptoms and the results that that caused, because it's not something that's immediately evident or people are very intelligent about the right things to say, even if they're not doing the right things. And as you said, it's an emotionally tough decision. It's not an easy one to make. Part of the reason I really appreciate talking to you is you've done this a lot. And you've learned, as you've said from reading the book and from your own experience, that trusting your gut, and I loved how you talked about dealing with it in an honest, kind, and compassionate, but also quick fashion. And you do it thoughtfully, but you do it. I love hearing it from you because it's not just me saying it, but that's what you know works. And now after you've, quote unquote, subtracted those two people from the purchasing area, what happened with that department? What happened with the team afterwards? Well, literally the day after, people just have more of a bounce in their step. They're more positive. They are willing to pitch in because all of a sudden you've got to avoid but people don't really care. They just pitch in and they figure out how to get it done. And that just kind of reinforces like, wow, that was pretty obvious. Why didn't I act sooner? Yes. And I, I love, <laughs> so much fun to hear you say this. I'm like, yes. And that's what a lot of times people are afraid of is the void and that, oh my gosh, who's going to do the work and the rest of the team's going to be more burdened. But just as you said, people willingly jump in and throw themselves at it because that toxic influence is gone and they're happier. They have more energy. They don't feel squished, just technical term. And they just are willingly pitch in because it's so much of a better atmosphere. And they actually look forward to coming to work as opposed to dreading it, which is what was happening before, I'm sure. Right. So one of the things I talk about quite a bit, people maybe get sick of hearing me say it, but I want people that aspire to greatness. Mm. And greatness is just doing the little things well every day and getting a little bit better every day. There's nothing magical about greatness. It's just getting better every day. And if you don't aspire to greatness and if you don't want to be part of a great team, I don't know, I don't have room on my team for you. It's, it's as simple as that. I just can't grasp the concept of why somebody wouldn't want to be great. 
I love that. One of the questions that you and I had talked about before, which I want to ask for the people who are no longer there, and again, they're often really good people, just totally in the wrong circumstances. No, you're right. Sometimes people just need a change of scenery. Mm-hmm. At least that's what I've learned over the years. You got perfectly good people who, for whatever reason, just need a change of scenery. So I try to take the approach of sometimes you're actually helping that person a lot. You're giving them the nudge that they can't give themselves. Mm-hmm. I've heard from people years later that, you know, I let go. I actually talked to one this morning on the way in. Sometimes you're giving them the nudge that they need. So what did they say in that conversation this morning? Oh, like this morning, you know, we just talked with Matt a little bit and he, he just said, how you doing? You know, I heard some neat things are going on right now at Bentley and how's your family? So there was, uh, how are you doing, Matt? I'm doing great. I mean, I'm working on a new business plan. I started my own business and you don't really expect to have those phone calls. But I guess what you learn is sometimes delivering a really tough message in a kind of compassionate way can lead better for a person. Yeah. And, you know, of course, it works for the organization, too. Those things work both ways. That is so great. And I love that you were talking to someone who was exited and they're still having a caring conversation, asking about families. And one of the things, and I didn't talk about this a lot in the book, but those relationships can continue. I've had a very similar experience where it was very clear that this person talked themselves out of a job and what they wanted to do was not going to be actually good for the company. So we made the very tough decision to exit her. We still stay in contact. She occasionally called me for advice. I was invited to her wedding. And you don't think that can happen, but it can. And it's disruptive. There's no question about that. It's hard. But it doesn't necessarily mean things are always over, that people resent you for the rest of their lives, which is, I think is what most people are afraid of. And I do want to get into some more of the obstacles and challenges because I think we're going through the list, but this is really useful. But I also want to talk about what's the impact on the other team members when you have someone who as you eloquently put it, are are kind of stuck in their rut and don't necessarily have the courage themselves to make that change. What's it like for the rest of the team when they're working with someone who's not engaged or not on the same page as everybody else? Well, that's by far the biggest risk of not doing something that I've found because I've done it wrong plenty of times. But if you don't take an action, especially if it's an obvious one, guess what happens? Your best people leave or the cancer spreads and somehow you pull that person to the dark side and it just spreads within the company. So I kind of learned a long time ago from a a great boss I had about 25 years ago that if you got a lifeboat and you can't get everybody in it, you better know who's in your lifeboat and make sure you protect and take care of them. Spend time with them because so often you end up spending most of your time with the challenges. Uh And that's just not time well spent. You've got to either fix it or move on as quickly as possible so that you can be giving your time to your your lifeboat people. Yes. And and I've seen so often when good people leave. And if that actually, I think, should be a clue. If you have good people leaving, then you have to look at what's the environment that they're having to come into every day because it's not enough to have them stay. There are lots of business reasons and life reasons why people leave your company. But if it's because of a toxic company culture, that's on you to do something about. So I think that is such a brilliant point. Thank you. What are some of the biggest challenges and obstacles? And you've talked through some, and I think there's mental obstacles, there's timing, there's also status quo obstacles, I think, to letting go of wrong fit people. So what are some of the ones that you've run into? What are the biggest challenges, either for you or other people in leadership, with letting go of wrong fit people? What's the hard stuff? I would say by far the biggest challenge seems to be when the person has an important role in the company and they're actually pretty good at their job Mm -hmm. or maybe very good at their job, 
but overall they're not very good for your company. Right. And you're maybe, and you shouldn't be this way, you aspire not to be this way as a company, but you're single-threaded through them. You're too reliant on the skill they perform. Mm. Those are probably the most difficult ones. I always say kind of back to hiring, I hire for attitude and aptitude. Mm. If you've got the right attitude and you have the ability and willingness to learn a growth mindset, we can teach you almost anything. But if you have the, the strong performer who can be a cancer in your organization, those are tough ones to get through because you put too much emphasis on, on what they're doing for you versus what they're affecting your culture. That is so true. That is so, so true. So what's the solution to that? Probably, obviously, in hindsight, it's not to be so dependent upon that one person's capabilities. But even once you have the problem, because I'm sure everyone's run into it or will run into it at some point, how can you prevent that from happening? In the long term, you just want to build a company that isn't dependent like that. But in the short term, that doesn't solve your problem. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, if you've got that going on, and I feel like we have that going on right now in a couple areas, you've got to very quickly move towards, you got to take a two-pronged approach. You got to try your best to save the person, but you also have to be getting somebody else up to speed. Right. And you have to just say, you know what, we're going to survive. No company should be dependent on one person ever. In fact, the most valuable people at a company are the ones that can really work themselves out of a job and leverage others. Oh, talk more about that. I mean, it's part of your growth mindset, as you've been mentioning, but but that's such a great point. Talk more about people like that. That's an interesting way to put it. I love it. Yeah. If you have the ability, and it's really a unique ability that you don't see that many people with that can take a job to the point where that job is not dependent on their skill at all, you can take that person they can replicate that many other places. They can teach other people how to use that skill. It's a skill you don't see very often, but when you get somebody that has, boy, are they valuable. And you have to make sure they understand that that's a very valuable skill. It's not a skill that they should feel threatened mm-hmm. by, that their job is threatened. That is great. And it's interesting because as I'm thinking, partly it's their skill and their willingness to basically come up with systems and structures that are teachable and coachable to other people. It's also a mindset, though. And it's interesting because <clears throat> this is a similar conversation that, I, again, I had yesterday. It's a shift, actually. I usually see it where someone's doing a particular role in a company to a leadership role, because when you're responsible for the doing of something, all of your status and your feeling of success and productivity comes from what you can do yourself. Yes. And then the shift is eventually, if not everyone gets there, is to how can you get things done through other people? And how can you let go of that thing that you loved and you built and you nourished and you nurtured this your baby? How can you actually let it grow, grow up and go on to other people right. so that then you can go and take on something new? And you've done that in your career. I've certainly done it in my career in terms of there's certain workshops I've designed and I started and I coached. I don't coach them anymore. Other people coach them. I'm clear about who my audience is as opposed to who other people's audiences are. And that's allowed me to do that. Now, do I still hang on to certain things? Yes, I think we probably all do. But it's interesting because not everyone sees that that's a goal, but you have to be willing to get out of your own skin a little bit and see that it's not only about what you can actually do yourself, it's about what you can also make sure gets done with the teamwork of other people. And that's a big mind shift for a lot of folks to make. Yeah, I used to be that person. I think I still am from time to time. And and then you pride yourself on it, that you're willing to dig in and do anything. But the quicker you can realize and keep coming back to that's not what's going to make your company great. What's going to make your company great is your ability to leverage and teach and coach 
others and even eliminate certain things, that's what makes your company mm-hmm. great. You can only go so far on your own back. Mm, great point. So just as we're getting toward the end of our conversation here, what advice would you give to people? And you've been very prescriptive, which I really appreciate. But if someone's read multiplication by subtraction or thinking about a tough situation or person that they're dealing with, from your own experience, what have you learned? What pep talks do you give yourself? What coaching would you give to somebody else when they're facing the situation? I just come back to the three things. My biggest learning, trust your gut. Mm -hmm. It's usually right. But then back it up with facts. And three, move quickly in an honest but kind and compassionate way. And I have to remind myself of that over and over and over again. And probably when we hang up the phone, I'll probably sit down with Michelle, my HR director, and talk about how we can actually practice what I'm preaching. (laughs) (laughs) To your point, though, until you actually talk it out loud and think it through, there are so many other business pressures and challenges and opportunities to focus on that often I think this one gets shoved down a little bit. It's like, oh, that's, I don't know what to do about that. I'm going to put it to the side until I do know what to do. But sometimes we don't figure it out until we think about it and we write it down maybe and we talk about it with other people. That can help really get clear on how can we coach this person if they're not rescuable, if that's a word, what actions are we going to take? And I think your list of three things is really astute. So I'm just going to repeat them again. So if anyone's writing down, they can capture them. Trust your gut, back it up with facts, and then quickly take action in a kind, honest, and compassionate way. And I I guess if I had to add a fourth, I'd probably say just be fearless because it's not pleasant. It's not fun, but you know, it's the right thing to do. On that note, I had a client, he got to the end of the book where I'm prescriptive about what to do. Because I say, have a short conversation. Often it's less than 15 minutes. He was like, oh, I have been putting this off and it's only going to take 15 minutes. (laughs) He said, I can do 15 minutes. And often it's not even that long. And probably spend 15 hours thinking about it. Totally. So he was like, ah, now I know I can handle this. I can do it. And that was kind of a relief to him. Now you do have to prepare, let me say clearly for that 15 minutes and have your ducks in a row and your paperwork and your, if you're doing a package or what have you, you definitely have to have that organized in advance. But if you know that the hard part's going to be short, I think that makes a great point. Dan always says, we always have a choice. There's long-term suffering and short-term suffering. (laughs) Choose which one you want. And short-term is, at least for me, much more preferable. (laughs) So I would agree with that. I agree. Okay, awesome. Now, I'm going to turn the tables a little bit. What if someone is listening to this and they have some of those symptoms that we were talking about that you were mentioning about being disengaged or status quo or comfortable in a rut and not having the courage We've been talking about what if you identify someone like that, what do you do as a leader? But what if the shoe's on the other foot? What if you're in that position? What can that person do? What advice would you give to them in terms of either subtracting themselves maybe or coaching themselves? What would you tell someone if they're listening to this going, ooh, that that could be me? What would you say to that person? When I saw the list of the 12 symptoms the first time, the first thing I did was read through it and say, gosh, am I in any of those buckets or have I ever been in those buckets? Mm -hmm. So I think the first thing is just be totally honest with yourself. And if you truly are, acknowledge the fact that you're truly in one of those buckets and make a decision. The decision might be, I have to have a different environment. Right. I think there's only two decisions, by the way. I either have to have a different environment Mm. or I have to change. Yes. I think those are the only two decisions because I can't for the life of me ever figure out why somebody would want to live in one of those buckets. That's a great point. 
but I've seen people in our own company who are so comfortable being uncomfortable, if that makes any sense at all. That people were in pain, but they were invested in it and they were stuck to it. And it was like glue, like tacky, sticky contact cement. And it, until we kind of made the decision for them, they were not going to budge. Yeah, at the risk of offending anybody in our organization, I just had a discussion with somebody last week. I'm kind of careful about my words here because I don't know who I'll be listening to, but I made the comment of sometimes we're like the walking dead. Mm-hmm. The other thing I said to the person was they've actually written a song about us. It's called Comfortably Numb. Yes. Don't let yourself get there. As a leader, one way or the other, I'm going to shock you out of that. I'm going to try my best to shock you out of that situation. And that might be shocking you out of the company, or it might be shocking you to newer heights within the company. But being in that state is, I don't think it's a good state for anybody. Oh, my goodness. Comfortably Numb was actually the title of a book that my husband was playing around with the idea of writing just before retirement. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm relating to that title quite a bit. And the whole Walking Dead, you know, one of the lines that came out as I was collaborating with my dear friend and designer, Kathy, was zombie. You see people who are zombies in companies, and why are you here? What are you doing? So to wake up is a challenge, and sometimes you can wake yourself up, but sometimes you're going to be woken up by other people. Right, and that gets back to the whole nudge thing. Hey, we all fall in that trap where sometimes we can't shock ourselves out of something, and you need somebody else to give you that nudge. Great. Yeah, no, I think that's totally true. So just to wrap up, Jeff, one of the things, again, I really appreciated this conversation today, but also prior, is just how important this is to creating a great company culture. So any last words of wisdom about that? Because given that that's your, as you've gone through all of your years of experience, you've learned that a great company culture is actually what makes the financials work. Correct. Yeah, we didn't talk at all about financials, but the fact is you will financially underperform if you don't have a good culture. Mm. And I can guarantee it, but I can't prove it. That's what I tell our folks here. (laughs) The analogy I use is it's like weight on a balloon. It's ballast and it's holding you down. And that's why I say it's a multiplication by subtraction, because once you take off the ballast, bam, you go higher, but you don't know how much higher until the ballast is gone. Right. So just like a hot air balloon, what's holding you back, what's causing friction, who's causing friction or drag. And when you remove that, again, huge heights are attainable. And we're talking financially here. And I'm as people know, productivity and profitability are two of my favorite business words. <laughs> right. So that's right. what you're doing when you're facilitating really great company culture through subtracting wrong fit people. Yeah. So the one other point I'd really like to make, Shannon, that I, I don't know if it came across very clearly, but cultures are bigger than the people involved. So you can have, and you often have a lot of very, very good people, very talented people, well-intentioned people, but the culture's bigger than the person. And if you can get that flip the way you want it, it's amazing what you can do with what you already have. Mm, I love that. And I think that's a really important thing to leave with is that most people in your company already are fantastic. And they have enormous capabilities that are tapped or untapped that can help you get where you want to go. And if you can just focus on a few of the core issues, people that are holding things back. It's amazing what you unleash. And one of the things I've learned, 
There's one time I thought that three people had to go. Turned out that only one of them did. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yes, and I was like ready to let go of all three of them, and and I would have lost two really good people out of that. And when that one person left, it was kind of those people you talked about in the middle. They're kind of in that middle zone, and they can go to the light as opposed to the dark side. Yep. But for a while, it looked like they were on the dark side, and I branded them all with the same brush. Turned out that two of them were very savable and have turned out to be rock stars. So I'm much more cautious now. I take one step at a time and remove the obvious issue and then see what happens and see how people transform when that one negative influence is gone. Is that something you do too? Yeah, that's why you get to that point too. You know, you trust your gut, but then you got to kind of back it up with facts and really assess all the people involved because you're right. I mean, that's amazing how often that happens. Mm -hmm. Well, I like the word that you use about being thoughtful about it. So you're not rash. You're not mad, you're thoughtful, kind and considerate, and you still take action quickly. And I think as you've summarized that, I'm like, that's the perfect message that I was trying to get across in the book, but I love hearing you talk about it. So Jeff, I can't thank you enough for sharing all your experience and your wisdom, and I obviously appreciate having such a like-minded friend with regard to multiplication by subtraction, but hearing how it comes to life for you in the businesses that you work with, especially family-owned businesses, I find really enriching and really insightful. So thank you very much for sharing your insights today. Well, thank you, and thanks for having me. Okay, great. So, Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. Again, I really appreciate everything that you share with us. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments about this Team Success podcast on multiplication by subtraction and Jeff's experience, please let us know at questions at strategiccoach.com. And as always, here's to your team success. Hi, Shannon here, and thank you very much for listening. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate the Team Success Podcast on iTunes, and we'd love it if you'd share the podcast with anyone else who could benefit. If you're interested in learning more about the Strategic Coach Program for Entrepreneurs, visit us at strategiccoach.com or the Strategic Coach channel on YouTube. For free downloads and more Team Success strategies, visit teamsuccesshandbook.com. Music.